This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Y'all, if you would like to, first of all, it's Cami here. And if you would like to hear me be the biggest nerd in the planet, great news, because there's today's episode. I am talking with CJ Juvingo, who is a systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California that um, works on the Mars rovers. Anyway, I thought this person was so cool. I had so many questions. We talk about Mars rovers for a while. Anyway, it's awesome. And I hope you really enjoy it. Hey, I also just wanted to mention that more and more people keep joining as Patreon patrons. So if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros. And um, I, I see all of your uh, donations come in. You know, I get I get an email when you join up and it, it just means the world to me. So thank you so much for your support. And please enjoy this episode and me being a complete goon. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still So, um, I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, my name's CJ Javingo. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I live in Los Angeles with my wife and our little two and a half year old toddler. Uh, we live in U- uh, USC residential community. We're kind of dorm parents, which is kind of a unique experience. Um, and I'm also a systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Most recently on the Mars 2020 mission, I was part of the entry, descent, landing team that had the opportunity to land the Perseverance rover on Mars back in February. Yeah, that's, we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, well, first, I just want to start with, uh, wait, you live, you live as dorm parents. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's, what, that's the phrasing you used, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's like they call it faculty residence, but we're basically the dorm parents. Yeah. Um, what kind of dorm situation do you live in? Like, how, what 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 types of students live there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're in the international residence community. So right now, it, there are no students. It's just us, and there's we're in a building that usually houses a little over four hundred people, and there's less than 10 of us now, just the, just the faculty members. Um, and that's, that's been wild. true since, since COVID. Yeah. It's kind of been nuts, uh, but good. I mean, it's been nice for us to have the space, but typically um, pre COVID times um, we're right in the middle of the floor to, to you step out my uh, apartment to the right, there's a suite of students and to the left, there's a suite of students and across the ways, like one of their lounges. Um, and so we're really here to just help support them and mentor them and anything they need. Um, we're the only out queer family in the faculty residence program. So we get a lot of the LGBTQ students kind of come knocking on a Sunday, just want to sit on the couch and chat and drink some tea. So uh, it's been how a wonderful long, experience. How long have you lived in community like that? Four years. Wow. Yeah. I would imagine that, um, I mean, that does, I can absolutely see what you're talking about, right? The students coming and knocking on the door and wanting to yeah. sit. And I can absolutely see the positive impact that way. I'm wondering how that is 
for you in terms of things like privacy or space or, um, you know, having autonomy versus Mm -hmm. community? Like what's that balance like? How, how is that? Yeah, that's, that was a real tension for me. My wife, Caroline is the extrovert in the family. Um, so, and she's the real contact. She's the one that actually works for USC. So she's the main contact for the organization, but but as you alluded to, you know, we're, we all, all live here, right? I have to walk from my car through a lobby full of students, take the elevator up to my apartment. Um, so you are, you're always on. And as a more introverted person, and when we first moved here, it was a real adjustment because I just wanted to be anonymous, got home from work. I wanted to go straight um, to the house. And some days I did. Some days I just did that. Um, but we chose to live here really to try to live our values and and be a part of that community and be able to give back in ways we've received. And so the days that I kind of could get out of my own way and, and let that in, it was, it's all, it's been such an incredible and rewarding experience. And we're, you know, still in relationship with many of the students we've mentored since our first year that many of them are graduating this year. Um, and many of them are spread out of, all over the world right now. have gone back to their home countries uh, because the majority of our, dorm more international students. So it's, it's been cool in the long run, but it was tough for me to get used to. Um, but ultimately more rewarding than not. What, what is your wife's role at the university? I mean, Mm -hmm. you can get into as much detail as you want, but uh, as a, as a professor or as something else? No, she's, yeah, Caroline works in the libraries. Uh, She's an associate dean of the libraries uh, and is also a head of one of the digital uh, libraries as well. Um, and then she, by evening, she likes to have a lot of jobs. That's just like her. <laughs> she likes to just have the hustle all the time. So she's also um, an associate professor in uh, the um, uh, MLI, MLIS program. That's a hard acronym, which is the Master's, Master's in Library Science. Science. Yes, that's right. Cool. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. Um I would also imagine that because it's specifically the international student storm that you might have students who come from places where queerness is not afforded the same either legal protections or um, societal acceptance or openness. Um, does that is that true? Yes, yes, we certainly saw a lot of that, and in, in many cases, we were the first people they came out to. And it always kind of went very similar. They'd come over. Um, we have two cats, so they'd come over and say they wanted to hang out with the cats um, and, you know, sit on a couch because they don't have, like, sure. they're, they're packed into the dorm. So, like, just the fact that we have a couch in the dining room is amazing to them. And so they come, and it's been, like, an hour, and we talk about, you know, pose or we talk about whatever is cool right now, and we get through all that time, and they get back to put their shoes on the back by the door, and they start to open the door, and they say, by the way, I think I'm gay. And then they start to leave and we're like, come back in, sit on the couch, let's talk about it. Um, so yeah, and, and and many of the students who went through that, you know, they they weren't comfortable back at home. They, they were afraid um, to be out. And so many times we had students who dressed in their, um, the gender they felt as themselves for the first time here in our house. And and it was awesome to, to get to provide that space for them. Yeah, that's a that is awesome. That's a huge responsibility and also pretty cool. I've certainly had that. I've had people tell me that um, after shows a bunch of times, and yeah. it's a really um, 
for me, like breathtaking thing. Yeah, a lot of responsibility. Also, I think there's a word for that. In, in I think that the thing that you're talking about, I think in like the therapy community, I think it's like a doorknob joke, um, which is like <laughs> as you're leaving therapy, like what the thing that somebody says, like right as their hand is on the doorknob. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Also, I think there's I, like I, a. I think I've pulled a few of those in therapy. Yeah, so, I yeah think it's that like makes an sense. actual like human characteristic that um yeah that we're sort of diminishing the amount of time that somebody could react if they're going to react negatively or be surprised or something so that we can like yeah have an out yeah exactly (laughs) um well that's super interesting uh that is also um some extra emotional labor that y'all are doing as the only out queer family on campus so perhaps there should be a exemplary queer salary bonus that (laughs) (laughs) i'll let my wife know (laughs) to bump her up a little bit yeah absolutely yeah there's only 24 families on campus but still i mean obviously we think there should be more um but there is an excellent lgbtq center on campus that does some wonderful work and provides like a lounge and um and a great network of organizations that are student-led that that spread out from that. Uh, so we try to tap into that, feed students into that network where we can. So I want to talk about the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's actually not too far from where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, first of all, could you just like, for anybody listening, could you like vaguely describe what this is? Yeah. Tell you what it is that we do. Yeah, like what is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory? Yeah, yeah. So the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is one of the NASA centers. Um, Interestingly, it's the only NASA center that's not run by NASA. It's run by Caltech. Uh, So it does give it a little bit of a different feel, right? It's got a bit more of an academic feel than a government feel. Uh, Oh, that's interesting. Beautiful campus nestled into the mountains just north of Pasadena. Um, And it's an incredible place that, you know, our... We do mostly things that go outside of Earth's orbit, like mostly interplanetary uh, work, although we do build some uh, spacecraft that uh, does Earth science. Um, Wait, I need you to slow down even more. Hang on. I just want to ask a couple questions. Sure, yes. yes, When you say it's one of NASA's, how many are there? Like, like just you might not know the exact number, but I don't know the exact number. Eight-ish? No, no, no. Yeah, got it. Close to 10, I'd say. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's Northern California, Houston, Alabama, Ohio, D.C., Florida. I think that's it. The one in, I've been to the one, I've been by the one in Alabama um, mm-hmm. when I was there when I'm doing a show. That is a wild one because there's just like a giant rocket yes. in, <laughs> uh, in a otherwise pretty not giant rocket filled sen- section of Alabama. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that one's got a, Huntsville's got a rich, rich tradition there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that whole town's really built up around the NASA Center. That is what I was hearing. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a surprise to me. Yeah. Um, I haven't been there yet. Uh, yeah, well, I mean. Oh, and there's one in Mississippi. How could I forget that? I'm from New one Orleans. And, yeah, I'm from New Orleans. I grew up not far from Senate Space Center. I don't know how I forgot it. There's that one there. We touch, They test a lot of uh, engines down there. And does each one, so do, do, do they sort of like have a space? specialization like if you're interested mm-hmm. in this thing you'll work mm-hmm. in this location kind of a thing yeah 
Yes. And so, yes. While there is some, that's a great question. While there is some overlap in, in you know, skill sets, they, we do specialize, right? So like Houston is where a lot of we the have a problem. humans. Sorry. We, exactly. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> That's where the Human Space Flight Training Center is, right? So all the astronaut happens in Houston, Got right? It. Um, Florida is where everything gets launched, right? So anytime yep. you're integrating spacecraft onto a rocket, all of that happens in Florida. Um, so each center does kind of have its own niche. And the one that's here, like mm-hmm. this is, I'm just going to guess based on random things I've seen on the internet. This yeah. is the one where like, you drive spacecraft that's elsewhere. Yes? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. Oh, I nailed it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, JPL like, like, also has the deep space network. So anything... I don't know what that is. I certainly so don't that, know what that is. <laughs> that, it's, um, it sounds exactly... It is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's anything that's in deep space. So whether it's from the United States or another country, any spacecraft that has gone into what we consider deep space... What um, do we consider deep space? Basically not not going around Earth, right, at that point. And once you've left Earth's orbit, we call it deep space. Um, so in order for it to communicate back with Earth, there are satellites positioned around the planet that then all send the signals back to JPL, to the deep space network, and we're the one that receives those signals and then push it out to the people that need it. So in contact, you're Jodie Foster. Yes. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> I'm not ready to go build the whole thing and go down the right, wormhole myself, right, right. but yeah, somebody right. else can, can play that role. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's okay. All right. Yes. Um, yes. But I don't do any of that work. I'm not on the deep space, but that's what, that's a big thing that JPL does is, is the deep space. space and this is a, like, this is a question, but that might not make sense, but, but the amount of stuff that you do there, is it like, there is total public transparency or or are there things that you're working on that like we don't even know about? And I'm not going to ask you about them, but I just mean, is it yeah. like, is it There's like, nothing we're I'm all, working on. yeah, yeah, got it. There are, there are some things we do have some government contracts that I'm not a, like, I'm not aware of. Um, and you have to have a special clearance to work on it. It represents a very small amount of our business. Most of our business is, um, public funded comes from Congress and from uh, what we call decadal surveys from scientists. Every 10 years, scientists around the world get together and set priorities for what should be studied, where we should put money, what wow. we should build. Um, so a lot of our work is derived from that and, and from Congress's, but, but Congress is the one that has to fund us. So whatever we can convince them to let us do, basically. <laughs> what do you wear to work? Normal. It's clothes? very yes, very casual, very okay. very casual. No yeah. jumpsuit. It's, no, no. You know, <laughs> there's been some hollow Halloweens that I think there were some jumpsuits. Okay, but no, all right. Not non traditional. <laughs> yeah, it's it's much more like you know jeans and a t shirt. Um, if you show up to work in a tie, folks are like, "Where are you interviewing? Like, what's going on?" Got it. Um. All right. So what is your specific job? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my job is uh, as a systems engineer. So if you think of a spacecraft, you know, there's lots of small bits that make up the spacecraft that each have their own function, 
right? Like you've got the radio that has to talk back to Earth and Earth has to talk to it. You have the power system that has to provide power to make everything go. You've got maybe propulsion to make the thing turn, right? You've got all these, what we call subsystems. And we have engineers whose whole job is to just build that subsystem um, to make sure that the propulsion works no matter what you do. Uh, but then we need engineers who take all those little bits and put them together and uh, make yes. sure they behave as a full system. And so that's my job as a systems engineer to kind of think about the full system behavior of the spacecraft. Um, and on this last mission, Mars 2020, that was on the entry descent landing team. So that was making sure that we could autonomously land this massive spacecraft on another planet. Um, so we had to think about all the different subsystems involved in the air. It's pretty cool job. It is a cool job. I will say, unfortunately, and I I hope I'm not the person to break this to you, in the movie Alien, you Mm -hmm. die early. (laughs) Yeah, that's You know, like, because there has to sort of be that part where, like, then the pilot is trying Mm -hmm. to fly the spacecraft without full knowledge of the systems. Like, you can't be the last one standing because you have too much information. I know too much, yeah. There's no rising above moment. I'm yeah. There. I'm yeah. so sorry to tell you that. That's it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. But you um, could be, I could, I could pass that on to you and then you could pass. You're right. It. I might be the last one. You like could be. I'm like, I like figure it out at the last second and yeah, yeah. That, it's, it you'll remember totally this me. conversation. And yes. Somebody exactly. told me about this one. I know what to do. Exactly. <laughs> you can see it. I go integrate the systems. My eyes open really wide. Mm-hmm, and then that's mm-hmm. the sort of moment all, where I figure it out. It just, yeah, yeah. It locks in and then you get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a um, matrix moment. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So how what, you're, I want to go back a bit and just talk yeah. about how you got to here. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, you're, well, maybe I'll just ask about like little kid stuff. Is this your little yes. kid job? Do you have your little kid job that you wanted to have? Yes. Yes. But I didn't take a kind of traditional path. Um, so yes, I loved space when I was a kid. I loved it. Um, I've been telling this story how um, in out in front of our house, you know, we had the streetlights. We would throw rocks near the streetlight because if you threw near it, it would take the light out temporarily. And then we'd go lay in the street and like watch the stars. That's the only way we could get actually see the stars where I lived. Um, Cause I just loved it. I was obsessed with kind of something bigger out there. And um, I was fortunate to grow up um, really being encouraged to follow my math brain. I love math. It's how my brain works. Um, and my mother really nurtured that in me, which was awesome. So when I got to college, I said, great, like I'm going to study astronomy. And, um, and I did. I studied astronomy and astrophysics, and I had a grant with NASA to do Where'd you go to re- school? research. Uh, Louisiana State University. Is that a, a large department there, or is that something that, mm-hmm. that other people are? Yeah, I mean, I went there because I was a that? state school. But yes, there was a community there. Um, but I was also... You know, I grew, I'd grown up in kind of strict environment. I went to Catholic school my whole life. And around leaving high school, getting into college is when I was really starting to come to terms with my sexuality, as well as also just like coming to terms with the world, right? Like just finding my voice politically and learning about feminism. It's just not something that I grew up with. And um, I also had to be, I had to put myself through school. I was working full time. So I was trying to like go to school full time, do this internship full time, 
and also work to put myself through school. Um, because I, when I came out as queer, like that didn't go so great. Um, and I faced a lot of discrimination in my department. And so I left. I said, screw this. Like I didn't work all this hard and also work so hard to come and be my, like come out as a person to then get all this flack. And I ended up dropping out of college and I went a whole different direction and I became a political organizer for many years. So I um, was a canvas director for the Fund for Public Interest for many years, running offices in Nashville, Minneapolis, Boston, San Francisco. Um, and then I started working for SEIU, the International Union. Um, I first started there after her, uh, Katrina in New Orleans, helping to find the, all of the public workers that had been laid off in the aftermath of Katrina, trying to get their jobs back. Um, wow. And then found myself working on the national campaign leading into President Obama's first election. We were raising money through the union to help get him elected. That's actually how I met my wife, Caroline. We were both organizers. And so I took kind of a detour, about a six, seven-year detour to just kind of go find myself, find what it is I wanted to do with myself. And I loved that work. Um, I loved it because it helped me find more about myself. And also I learned a lot more about people, um, and relationships. Um, but I really missed my math brain. I really, really missed it. Uh, but somewhere in that path, I'd kind of convinced myself that I dropped out because I wasn't smart enough to do it and not because of the circumstances I was in. So I went back, I went to trade school, um, in New York, it was like non-traditional employment for women, which at the time I identified as. Um, and I ended up getting a job working for a solar company down in North Carolina. Lots of nomadic <laughs> lifestyle in there. Um, and it was there that I kind of started using that side of my brain again. And I was like, oh, I need to go back to school. Like this is, this isn't enough. I need to, I really need to go back. And at that point I knew more about myself and what I liked. And while I had enjoyed the astronomy in my first tour at college, it was very solo. It's research. It's just you in a room staring at, you know, ancient pictures of stars, which is beautiful, but kind of drove me nuts. <laughs> and I'd learned over my 20s that I was much more people related. Um, and so I took my first night class uh, in calculus and I came home and told Caroline, I said, I, I have bad news to tell you. I have to go back to get an engineering degree. And I'm like, that's going to be in astronautical engineering. I've got to go and work in space. And I did. It took me close to four years of night school, um, but I did. And so actually this job at JPL is my first engineering job. So I joined JPL in 2014 at 33 years old um, as a fresh out of undergraduate. So it was kind of a you know different turn to get here. But the interesting thing is systems engineering is a lot like political organizing. It's all about getting all these different people together who, you know, are all kind of heading in the same direction, but you all have different ideas how you want to get there. And somebody's got to get in there and say, okay, here's how we all get together. Um, so that time in my 20s really helped prepare me um, to get here to do this kind of work. So That's really interesting. I mean, yeah. are, you, you are, are you talking about you are actually a connector of people going between different engineers who work on the different parts and like synthesizing all of that into one plan? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a team of systems engineers, so I'm not the only one. There's there's several of us, but yeah, that's that's our our job is to get get folks in a room and and say, okay, how do we all make this fit together? 
And then <laughs> you what? You build it and you mm -hmm. test it yes. on Earth? I don't yes. know. <laughs> yes, yes. No, absolutely. I'm just yeah, saying so things that seem like they would be what your, happens. Your yeah. intuition is, is spot on. Yeah. So you start by designing, right? You spend a lot of time um, in using tools like PowerPoint, honestly. This, this is what we think works here. And once that design is crisper, then you write requirements, which sound really boring. They're, all, they're like, this thing shall do this, right? But that's really how we come up with the criteria for how the thing should be built. Um, and some of those parts of the spacecraft are built in-house at JPL, and some are built by subcontractors. Uh, and once they get built, they get sent to JPL and to be assembled. Wow. Um, in our, we have a massive clean room there. You should take a tour. They, we do a lot of free tours. Yes. You should definitely do a tour. Um, yeah, and then my job was to test it. So we have a test bed that simulates the spacecraft. So we have the same hardware and then the same software, kind of like an operating system that we would use on the spacecraft. And then anything we couldn't build, you had to just write special software to simulate it. Like, obviously, we couldn't fire our thrusters in the test bed, right? It would burn everybody down, especially here in California. So you had to have simulators to do that sort of thing. And then you just run scenario after scenario. We spent years running the different scenarios to make sure not only that it worked the right way, but all the ways it could go wrong, we would still ultimately land. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Here's a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> how, how much, what's like the sort of rate of change or whatever between different spacecraft? Like, I guess what I'm asking is if something can land on the moon, yeah. like how different is something that can land on Mars? Like, yes. are you building it from scratch or are mm -hmm. you sort of using... Or, or is it like a change? Like which of the, which of those things is it's both the way that it works? It's both and really. Um, you know, our mission was based on a, the previous mission, the Mars Science Laboratory, which sent Curiosity about a decade prior, and that was the first time JPL had ever really built two of the same of similar things. JPL likes to be a kind of we only build one thing one time because we like to be cool like that. Um, but the truth is, even when we're building something new, not all the parts are new, right? You can't throw out all the lessons you've learned from all the missions we've sent before. So, you know, maybe the computer is the same because we know that that works. And it's not like you can just build get any spacecraft computer off the shelf, right? So some of the piece parts are the same. Um, but... 
you know, a lander on Mars and a lander on the moon are very, very different thing. Um, you know, we've, you have different atmosphere to deal with, different gravity to deal with, um, the size that we're sending, how fast it's coming down, all that stuff has to be dealt with. Um, so that landing in different places does make a huge difference. Yeah. I have so many other dumb questions. It's really fun. None they, of these questions they, are dumb. They, None. Okay, they also go like this. Somebody drives it, right? Not in the way you or, think. Ooh, what a good answer. <laughs> Folks think we have a joystick, you know? And in fact, in our mission control center, when you take a tour, we do have a joystick out on one of the tables just to kind of mess with people. But that's not actually how we drive it. It's really just a bunch of computer code we send up and say, okay, here's where you should go. Oh, it's code? Yeah. That so. is a disappointment. What a... <laughs> <laughs> but if you look in the movie The Martian, I think they even had a joystick in that movie too. Just as yeah. yeah. I mean, if it's not a joystick, at the very least, I want it to be gloves and like VR glasses. Come on. Can't you yes, just... I know. Please... You know, here's the real trouble is you have an 11 and a half minute delay. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. So you could, you know, turn left and then boom, you hit a rock and you won't know. So, which is why actually on our mission, we built in autonomous driving. So our rover is the first rover that kind of think while it's driving and say, yeah, maybe oh I should so cool. go over there. Yeah. That's so cool. Also an 11 and a half minute delay. That is, that seems like that should be much longer. It's so frightening. Well, that's that one way. Is that's wild. just one way. It's 22 minutes round trip. That's still, that just feels like that should be 22 days. That's that's, <laughs> that's a very short yeah. time period. Yeah. Um. So was it the, because you guys also drove, didn't you drive the the moon rover that, w- that had to be shut down and had its last transmission that was like, I'll be seeing you. And then I had to cry and send it to my entire family because that was also on Mars. That was also that on, was Mars. on Mars. And that was us. Yeah. That, that was, was you. Mars. Yeah. Yeah. That was Boy, opportun- did that make opportunity. Opportunity. Yeah. That was opportunity. Yeah. That's the one. That was mm-hmm. the one. Opportunity um, also had a sibling named Spirit who also um, didn't make it. Although those rovers were designed to either last 30 days or 90 days, something really small. Right. And Spirit lasted six years and gosh, Opportunity lasted, I don't know, a long time. I don't even remember how long. It was a very, very long time. Um, those were cute little rivers too. They're like the size of a, um, like a toaster on wheels. Well, cute. I guess, I guess that's, you know, sort of, so first of all, I definitely sobbed my head off at that <laughs> news. I'm serious, like cried so hard. But yeah. I guess also like, you know, your emotional attachment mm-hmm. to these Objects. I mean, I would think like this is an extension of. I mean, this, if this was if it was me, I would feel like this is an extension of me out yeah. there, you know. And it would feel like a very, I mean, somewhere between like anthropomorphized, but also like a child, or you know, mm-hmm. like a you know, it would feel very. I would feel very emotionally connected to this uh, work yeah. as you're 100%. describing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've spent so much time. A lot of my testing with the with the spacecraft is was on my own. So I would spend, and most of my tests were eight, nine hours at a time. So it's just like me literally talking to the, you know, through computer, talking to the spacecraft, working it. So I felt like I spent a lot of time with this being over many, many years. And so, you know, as we were, I was sitting in the control room when we landed, you know, and it was, you know, the public sees the last hour, but we'd been there 
for about eight days. And that particular morning, I'd been there since like 5 a.m. And so as we're getting closer to the entry sequence and we're waiting to hear from her, I'm just like, I was like almost like talking to, you know, a friend or, or even a kid a little bit too. You're just like, come on, get there. You know, like each time we had a big milestone in that sequence, you're like, oh, hold on, you can do it. You know, just, just rooting them on. And it's her because it's a ship? Yeah, I think it's just, yeah. We never actually talked about the, the rover's pro- pronouns, but yeah, her, she her is what we usually use. <laughs> and does this one have a name? I'm sure I do know. Perseverance. Yeah. Although we call it Percy. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're screwed now. <laughs> you call <Yeah>. her Percy. <laughs> wow. And yeah. do you feel proud, like, not just of yourself, but also of this being? Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, if if yeah. she's landing, like, is there, like, a pride in? Yeah, I think the pride I felt more was for my team. Um, cool. I felt a lot of relief that. Percy was on the ground and my job was done. <laughs> they got to hand it wow. over to the to the next team, the surface team. Um, when you say but, eight days, I want to ask this question too. Mm-hmm. Do you mean you mean you go home, right? Yes. You go home and sleep. Well, we were we were operating from home until the last two days. So all of this was remote, just like everybody else. So I was testing from my bedroom. I was, you know, when when we started operations, we were all remote. Um, sending commands remotely. Yeah. Do you have a wild setup or are we just talking off of like a MacBook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A MacBook with a very nice monitor. <laughs> Seriously? My monitor's like this big, okay. but yeah. <laughs> but other wow. than that, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And then the wow. last two days we were in person in the, in the operations. Yeah. And the last eight days, those are the days like um, the cruise team has taken us all away from launch to like very close to Mars. And then the ADL team, the entry, descent, landing team, we take over, I think it's seven or eight days out. Um, and we start monitoring the spacecraft at that point. And, you know, we have like built in um, activities as we're getting closer to the planet. We're starting to feel um we're starting to feel Mars as we're getting closer. So we're kind of adjusting our position and, and things like that. Yeah. How do you land on Mars? <laughs> you, well, you have to let them land. The, the, that's the really scary part. So because of this delay in time, we in, and it happened so quickly. So from the top of the atmosphere to the surface is around seven minutes, right? But if there's 11 minute one-way light time, 20, 20, 22 minutes, we can't command it at all. In fact, we don't even know whether it survived until the, the thing comes back. The whole thing happens all by itself. So you have to design it to do everything. So it comes in, it gets rid of the cruise stage of the spacecraft, because the, spa- the spacecraft's act- actually in several pieces, all bolted together. So you get to the top of the atmosphere and we jettison the cruise stage. So that's the bit that had solar panels and special um, radios to talk to earth while we were just, you know, spending six and a half months on the way from earth. So we get rid of that. And at that point, you're just this aerodynamic capsule. It's got a heat shield on it. um, And you come into the atmosphere, starts burning up that heat shield. Kind of like, you know, if you remember the space shuttle, you remember those black tiles on the bottom of the space shuttle that was there to kind of I mean, I certainly know what a heat shield is. I can't tell you the number of the number of like, but I but in my mind, I'm like, 
Sandra Bullock's in there. It's got a hold. Or like <laughs> Apollo 13. It's got yes. a hold. That's the yes. one thing I know about a heat shield. Yes, it's that's exactly right. got it a to. hold. <laughs> it has to hold. It has to hold. So that's there to kind of uh, what we call ablate the heat. Because um, inside of that capsule are two last bits of the spacecraft, which is Percy the rover, but in this kind of folded up origami style um, configuration. And then on top of it is what we call the descent stage, but it's basically a glorified jet pack. Okay, so those are connected together inside this capsule. So first we have to survive the heat of entry. Then we open the biggest parachute that has ever been built ever at supersonic <laughs> speeds. Um, and we hope that that holds. Um, and it's got that's hold. it's got to hold, <laughs> right? That slows us down a little bit more. And at that point, we drop the heat shield, but everything else is still in what we call the back shell. And we've got cameras on the bottom and we start looking, we're using our radar to see, okay, where are we? Like how far from the planet are we? Um, we've taken, we've put maps on board. So we know um, that we've used the kind of orbiters that are already around Mars for years. We've been taking pictures. So we want to know, we want to tell the spacecraft exactly where it is. So it's looking to say, where am I, where am I, where am I? And um, we drop that jetpack and rover out of the space of the, of the capsule. And now it's flying on its own. So those there's rockets on the jetpack that are, that are burning down as what we call retro rockets to help slow it down even to more. Slow it. Got mm-hmm. it. Got it. And then got it, it now it's looking at the map and it says, Oh, I found a safe place to land. So then it does this big divert. It turns, it goes and flies toward that location and it slows it down even more. And then it starts to lower the Rover down on bridles, which are just like nylon cables. It's just like three cables that lower this SUV size rover down. And then we pop the wheels open. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And we pop the wheels open and then gently set the rover down. And as soon as that jetpack feels the change in the pressure of those bridles and says, oh, okay, I'm down, it cuts the bridles and flies away and goes and crashes itself safely somewhere else. And then you're done. Wow. But we don't get to see any of it real time, right? We're just waiting for it to do that. So when you build it, you have to build it as if any part of that could go wrong and you still need to recover and land itself, Um, which is why it takes as long as it does. I mean, I started working on this mission in 2014. We landed in 2021. So it just, it takes a long time to make sure it can do what it's supposed to do. And what is Percy doing up there? over there, yeah. out there. Yeah, so she's had a busy few weeks. You know, the first few weeks um, are just making sure she survived and all her systems are working nominally. Um, then we did our first drive about, so just checking out the area that we're in and giving the scientists an opportunity to see the rocks that are there. We landed in a river delta, an old river delta. Um, so scientists are really excited about the potential for finding past life, which is why we went there. Um, And then we also had a special visitor with us. We launched with a a helicopter on the belly of the rover. Um, The helicopter's name is Ingenuity. We also call that Ginny. Um, So Ginny got dropped off, um, and then we had to do a checkout. And just this week, we Flew Jenny for the first time ever. So it's the first time a rotorcraft has ever flown on another planet ever. Um, and then, so that was a big week. And then just recently, I think it was yesterday, 
we have an instrument on board. It's called Moxie. Um, and we are testing the ability to take the Martian atmosphere, which is mostly carbon dioxide, and turn it into oxygen um, with the hope that one day we could do that when we send astronauts or for both for breathability, but also to make fuel. Uh, and so we just successfully did that, I think, two days ago, which is pretty cool. So it's been busy. We've had a busy Wait, what, two months. What is is that? What is that? Dev- is it like a filter? What is that device mm-hmm. doing? Yeah, it's it's. I couldn't tell you how. Honestly, would have to. I'd have to ask, ask an instrument engineer. But yeah, there's like um, the box itself is inside the belly of the rover, and it's got kind of an inlet on the exterior, sucks in the atmosphere, um, and then breaks that down, tries to make pure oxygen, and then... So it's a plant. You built a plant. Yes, we built osmosis, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay. So it's been busy. Um, We haven't yet started our major drive. We're still in the same area that we landed, but eventually, um, once... These are all technology demonstrations, the the helicopter and the uh, MOXIE, the oxygen maker. Uh, but our prime mission is to take samples of the, the surface and put them in tubes for the next mission to come. It'll be the first time we'll have samples come back from another planet. So the next mission is gearing up now. It's called the Sample Return Lander. And that mission's job will be to come take the samples that Perseverance is is capturing and then bring those back to Earth. We don't have any of those. We don't have, never. No, we've never had that before. Yeah. And then what are we trying to do? Move to Mars? What's going on? What are we, what are we up to? You know, I mean, there's lots to, I mean, proving that there was life on another planet ever, I think would be, is the first big step, right? Sounds big. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we've already proven that there was water, liquid water on Mars. We've proven that there is the, the potential habitat to breed life. Now, when we're talking life on Mars, we're talking microbes. We're not talking about, you know, little green people. Um, but still, it would be incredible if five billion years ago there was actually microbes alive on the planet. So the trouble with sending, we, we, we build these sophisticated rovers and they can do some really cool science, but it doesn't compare to what we have in our labs here on earth. So in order to truly validate that what we find there is true, it's got to come back. Um, So I think first and foremost is just knowing that. And then if we prove there's life on another planet, even under the solar system, gosh, I think that'd be a game changer in a lot of ways. I mean, we're already. Like what ways? Well, first and foremost, just our understanding of, what is habitable, right? And that while we are special here at Earth, we are not unique. (laughs) So maybe there's more like us out there. Um, But then, yeah, I mean, uh, um, uh, setting up camp on Mars is certainly something folks talked about. Um, It's not something NASA has committed to. We do want to send astronauts there in the next, in the 30s, I believe. Um, But... I think there are other people like Elon Musk who are maybe interested in building communities there, but as a, as an organization, NASA, we haven't, we haven't talked about that yet. Do you have, this is a, this is like a, I guess it's a weird question, but do you, would you ever want to go? Personally? Yeah. To like out, would you ever want to go? Not alone. No, it'd be hard to leave my family. 
I'm also not great on like roller coasters or anything. So I imagine like a <laughs> rocket would be pretty tough ride, you know, <laughs> but gosh, to be out and actually get to see past, even, even just to get into orbit around earth, like the international space station and get to see what they see. I mean, that would be cool. That would be really, really cool. I just want to see how big it is. All of it. Yeah. Which obviously you can't, but, but just get a better, you know, there's only so that just get a sense of that scale, I think would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I had Anne McLean on the podcast. Who's an astronaut who's been up there. And that was, I it's, I was as much a little kid as I have been during this conversation. <laughs> of just like being so excited to hear about it and asking a ton of questions. Um, would you go? I think it sounds terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really do. I mean, like, to me, what's so funny about the moment that we're living in right now is like, um, I mean, this is like a, you know, a stand up comics sort of metabolization of of what the vibe is. But like, you know, there's like talking to Anne McLean and she's like, yeah. you know, she's like a, you know, athlete and like vet and like, you know, like she's like got all yeah. this stuff. And then she's like a, you know, she's an astronaut. And then there's talking mm-hmm. to you and you're like clearly understand a zillion things about science that like I definitely do not understand and then there's like Elon Musk and look I (laughs) I there is nothing about that particular individual just not having ever spoken to him that leads me to believe he's like this is this might just be my own assholery he doesn't seem different than me he doesn't seem like somebody who has like but he just kind of seems like uh, somebody with like a really big ego. This is just me watching from the yeah. outside. And so now that like that guy's doing space stuff mm-hmm. or like, like the dude who came up with, um, the idea that we should be able to order books from our homes is like yeah. trying to get into the space. Jeff Bezos. It's like, Right, but I mean, so I mean, yes, his name is Jeff Bezos, but like sometimes to just remember who he is, like, but like, (laughs) like that's a great idea, but it's also that's his idea, you know, like, um, Blue Blue Origin is his space organization, and it's there; it's a big one. Yeah, Yeah, no, I know, I know. They just like lost to SpaceX, you know. So anyway, it's just the idea that like those two dudes are sort of in the race now. Yeah, it just here's the beautiful here's the beautiful role that they play. And this is the way I like to think about this. You know, NASA, in the earlier days of NASA, our risk posture was very different, right? The appetite for taking big risks was huge, right? This was a space race we were talking about, right? Like you did what you had to do to get done. But we also, we lost a lot of lives in that process. And so, and we lost a lot of money secondarily, Um and so our risk appetite as an organization and as a country really got lower. But that also meant yeah. that our ability to push the envelope got slower, right? So when you have these outside folks who have all this money and they can push and lose the money that NASA is not going to be given to lose, that helps us all move forward just a little bit quicker, right? Like they still have to, if they're going to do anything related to astronauts, they still have to follow NASA's requirements. So we know that there's safety there, but they're able to push us further in ways that we're not allowed to kind of take those kind of risks. And the truth is we're not all quite so separate. We do a lot of work together 
too, which is really great. So I like to think of them as like the arm of the space industry that gets to really take risks that Congress isn't going to fund us to take. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 and then there's a space force. I mean, there's a and lot of different, there's, the there's just a lot going on yes. right now that like, I think as yeah. a little kid, it just feels, it feels like we're, we're in a pretty interesting time. It um, is. Compared I was surprised to, to see President Biden keep space force. Honestly, I thought that he would do away <laughs> with that pretty quickly because really the air force has already been the space force. Like we already have a space force. It's the air force and there's a huge space division and it's got a bigger budget than NASA. Like, that's already existed. It's just not called Space Force. So, you know, I'm, I'm was surprised that we we needed a Space Force. So, <laughs> but it's not new. The the work that's happening is not new. We're just calling it something different and giving it a flag. You're kidding me that something created during the previous administration wasn't um, actually new in any way or interesting. You're or sh- I'm shocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Shocked. It's surprising. It's surprising. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, this has been such a cool conversation. I really appreciate um, you talking me through the whole, like, sort of nuts and bolts. And I have like a, so I, we always end with people shouting out a queero, but I think I have one question before that, which is yeah. about, you know, the intersection of identity and this work that you do. Like, mm-hmm. I know you talked about being... um turned off and 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 leaving um and i'm curious about you know coming back the comfort that you feel um in yourself or at the workplace you know how mm-hmm. how is that for you yeah it's it's a totally different experience than <clears throat> when i was in college the first time um you know i came out as a non-binary trans person while at jpl i think i was at jpl for less than a year when I came out professionally. Um, and so I had to, like, I experienced, you know, uh, coming out uh, using new pronouns. I, I had the same name. But, you know, there was, there was a lot of change there for folks. But JPL is also an incredibly open, progressive place. Um, and so there were certainly some bumps, especially around bathrooms. <laughs> but we're also really fortunate to live in California. That's got a lot of protections already built in. Um, and so my team, I found to be incredibly supportive. Um, and they were great allies of mine being out front. And I had many supervisors. Um, we have a kind of odd structure of supervisors. You have people who are your bosses on the mission, and then you've got bosses who are kind of on the technical side that you report to also. And I was just really fortunate to have incredible all female supervisors who, who were like, okay, like I got you, we're going to figure this out together. Um, you're not, you're not here on your own. Um, and that was wonderful. It's an entirely different experience. Um, and then I eventually found other trans folks on lab and we started a trans group uh, as a subgroup to the LGBT group on campus Um, and that was wonderful. I mean, finding community is always helpful and the things that we wanted to change better access to bathrooms, you know, better information on healthcare, things like that. We were able to do together and, um, and JPL has been incredibly receptive about it. Um, so it was good. It was much, I was very fearful, 
honestly. I wasn't sure how it would be, uh, but it was great. It was, it was really wonderful. Has that bathroom piece looked like having access to like a single stall or like non-gender specific bathroom? Is yeah. that what it's looked like in practice? Yeah, that's what we were. We were ultimately looking for more not uh, not gendered restrooms. You know, a lot of these buildings on JPL has been around for a really long time. And so they've got all these old small buildings that do have single stall restrooms and they were all labeled men, right? So you'd have, because it, the the primary workforce were cisgendered men in the in the early days and so we we didn't just find the cause for non-gendered spaces but also just more female identified spaces and also more ADA compliant spaces and more spaces for nursing so it ended up becoming a much bigger um kind of question that we were asking but and and they were really easy fixes right in many cases it was just changing the sign on the door it was just that a matter of that. So, uh, but it did take us canvassing the entire campus. And we literally, we would just split up because it's like 300 acre campus. It's massive. Um, so we would just split up the buildings and we go take walks on lunch and just document, okay, here's what this bath, this is what that, this bathroom looks like. And this is how many people are in this building. And, um, and we got it done. It took us about, I think, six months to get some, some change, but I mean, that's pretty small in, in the big scheme, scheme of things. So, well, I've loved hearing about your life and your work. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks and, for um, chatting with me. I want to ask you to shout out a queero before you go back into your day. That's like a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. You know, I, I, this is probably a silly one, but I remember being young and watching Ellen come out in her sitcom. Um, and that really was a big moment for me, seeing that on TV with my parents being like in the room, being like, okay, how, how's this going to roll out? Um, that left a really big impact. Um, but I, I haven't really had a lot of any queer engineers to look up to. Uh, so that's really driven me to be one, to, to be in, even, even when I'm uncomfortable uh, being out in, in the open. That's what keeps me driving is to make sure that there is somebody somebody else has to look up to. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. I'm sure you are uh, creating a whole group of people that will come behind you. That's, that's first <laughs> of all. And then second of all, you know, I don't know. I mean, for me, I mean, maybe this, maybe this, you know, didn't touch you at all. I don't know. But like, I do think that um, in terms of just like being a gender nonconforming person, mm-hmm. the stuff that I love about like sci-fi specifically mm-hmm space stuff and i wasn't like some big i'm not like a star trek person and i know that many people talk specifically about star trek in this area like that there are just there's just like a lot of different types of representation but for me it was actually often that like the women that were in these movies you know ripley um is huge because um the women that were in these movies they were just doing so many things that i didn't see um women doing outside of these movies like sarah connor is just doing stuff in the terminator that i don't see women doing outside of that so even like though that might not be like a one-to-one like i'm not trying to then you know um end up in a A robot fighting well actually no i am trying to end up robot fighting i mean that in terminators you know she also like 
has sex with a cis dude. So like, there's like right. stuff that I don't, you know, that doesn't yes. make sense yes. in a one-to-one relationship, but just, you know, in a, in a world absent gender, non-conforming people, some of the yes. closest things that I could look to were yeah. like these sort of powerful women wielding, you know, lasers in space. Or whatever. Yes. Like, yes. like that was really yes. important to me, you know, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely. a reason that I have 1000 action figures Here's Ripley in her space. Suit. There's a reason that, like, I have this stuff, you know, yeah. and it's not just because, um, because I think there is some gender stuff in there for me and, and always was, uh, always had stuff in there to me. So, like, hearing the stuff you're talking about, it's like, yeah. I don't know, there feels like there's like some freedom, even just thinking about it. I know you're talking about an actual place here, yeah. but the stuff that I know, the reference points that I have for it, it like feels like more freedom than I saw. Yeah. In other forms of media. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, uh, to that end, there are a lot of women who inspire me. One particular woman, her name is Dr. Vera Rubin, who's actually, she's an astronomer. She discovered, I believe, discovered the black hole in the Andromeda galaxy, which led us to discover a black hole in our galaxy. So women like that, I was absolutely inspired by because she was just surrounded by men, right? Um, But she did a lot of work to then help women find their, and bring them up with her. So I was both inspired by the work she did, but also at, at, at showing what it means once you find that space, as you turn around and you help other people. get. To wow. It. That's so, pretty cool. Yeah. So I was never a sci-fi person though, which is just oh my kind of God. a shame. Well, it's really lost on me. I but, love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've started reading more sci-fi books now in my adulthood than I ever did as, as a youth. And I'm like, okay, I get it now, but, but that mostly, makes sense to me. Yeah. If you like think it's a real place that you're looking at, you know, that yeah. you want to like do math about, that's kind of the opposite <laughs> of being like, you know, this is a fake place filled with lasers. So, exactly. you know, it's, yeah, yeah you know, it's really right. different stuff. But, Thank you. Um, that, yeah. That, that makes me feel better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, CJ, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And, it's been uh, great talking to you too. And see you on Mars when we yes. go. One day. <laughs> And I'll die first, and then you'll take it. <laughs> Absolutely.